battle big time. We started this series last Lord's Day called This Means War. And um, today is the second in that series. Let me let, lay the context for you to begin with again. And I plan on doing this every message during the series so you don't miss what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians, especially the sixth chapter. He opens the first two chapters basically by saying, I want you to know that you are saved by grace through prayer. Oh, wait a minute. You're saved by grace through Bible reading. You're saved by grace through tithing. You're saved by grace by joining the most perfect church on the globe, HBC. Oh, wait, you're in the church. No. You're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Great concept in chapters 1 and 2. In other words, you're in this battle or in this Christian life simply because God worked in your heart and mind. And I know we're responsible to come into the family of God by faith and expressing that faith to him but let me turn it around and say when you get in the family of God and look on the other side of the doorway that on the entrance says you're saved by grace through faith on the other side it says you haven't chosen me but I have chosen you and set you up for a Christian walk which is what chapters 3, 4, and 5 in the first part of 6 are all about it's this Christian walk that God has brought you into is all about some key elements. Holiness. I'm reading through the Old Testament with my bride and we're having a great time in the book of Leviticus. You ever read through that? There's only one book worse. It's Numbers. Leviticus is all about all these turtle doves and pigeons and bullocks and goats and lambs and Everything else that you got to kill. And God, in essence, at the end of almost each one of those instructions, says something very powerful. I am. Do this because I am holy God. And I want, in essence, you to be what I am holy. And that's what's emphasized in the third chapter, holiness. And of the book of Ephesians. God wants you to be like him. And then there's this whole idea of unity, which is indispensable to this battle, this war that we're in. And love, which is also indispensable. And light, we're to bring understanding to darkened minds and help them see and know the truth that God has given us. And, and wisdom is another issue that he addresses as you Walk this walk that God has brought you to, this path, Christian path, that God has brought you to. And then he comes to the 10th verse of the 6th chapter, the last chapter, and he says, finally. And that word carries with it the whole idea, if you're still with me, it carries with it the whole idea that all that's been said about God calling you and about what your life should look like 
after you've experienced his grace, all of that leads to this one final point that you and I may not sidestep. It's a point that is not really talked about much in the Christian realm because nobody likes to join the war. But in the sixth chapter, he says, if you're going to walk this way with all those five qualities, you better expect the battle. You're in the war. And then he adds to it this, but I don't want you to walk in that war in a timid way. I don't want you to turn around and run from it. I want to give you hope, Paul's saying, through the Holy Spirit's leadership. And the hope is simply this. If you'll put on the whole armor of God, you'll be able to stand against anything that the enemy throws your way. And again I say, put on the whole entire armor of God. So you get the point. The book of Ephesians is all headed to one thing. You're in a battle. You're in a war. Aren't you glad you came to hear that? Aren't you excited? Yeah, well, you and I understand that most of the stuff we battle over, God's not in. There's a battle waging under the roof that I live in. Do you want to hear about it? The most significant battle that I can remember we've had this year is, when is it time to put the soap in the dishwasher and run it? Now, how dumb is that battle, right? Most of the battles in our homes, God's not in. You think maybe the same thing's true at church? I do. Most of the battles we fight over, I don't think God's in. You know, what Bible to use, what songs to sing or not sing, where the clock should be in the auditorium. It's right where, I, where it belongs. I can see it and I pay attention to it. You don't need to see it. Oh, laugh with me a little, will you? I mean, what kind of a broom should we buy to sweep the floors with or the gym with? It's like, oh, oh no, churches don't fight over that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, everything I just mentioned, I've watched people war over those things. You think God's in any of those wars? Not a single one of them. God is not in. It's a different battle. And we're going to talk about this whole idea of identifying when it is we're really in the battle that God's in. Now, I want to back up and say not only is Ephesians about that, but the whole Bible's all about that. The only place in the Bible that I see peace is in Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was holy. And it was united, and it was loving, and it was light, and it was wisdom all around, for God had just worked. But 12 minutes into that, or however long, just a brief time, who knows, enter, that was Act 1, God created everything marvelously. Act 2, enter Satan and the war. Is on. And by the way, that war began with an accusation. If you want to know if Satan's involved, 
then just start listening and seeing if there are accusations about motives and hearts thrown out all over the place. Then you can begin to know Satan's at work. Do you not remember what he said to Eve and Adam? God does know in the day you eat thereof, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And Satan is at work with implications, things he doesn't say, but he does say. Sometimes the things you don't say speak so loud that others can't hear what you do say. And here's what he didn't say, but where he was really headed. Are you still with me on that? Or did I just confuse you? He said, God does know you'll be like him. What he didn't say, but where he's headed in the accusation is, and God doesn't want you to be like him. And I want to tell you, all the rest of the Bible shouts out, that is a lie, and that accusation, and anytime there are those kinds of accusations, they don't come from man, flesh, and blood. They come from the devil himself. Because as I understand my Bible... He ordered the history of the world after the fall so that you and I can be brought back into his perfect image and ultimately that's his perfect goal for everyone who follows him to be like him. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, Larry. Oh, love. God wants us to be what he created us to be in his image. Satan you started a war by accusing my Lord. And all the rest of the Bible is either about the war or how to deal with the war. I love Ephesians, the fourth chapter, especially verses 22, 23, and 24. It talks about a war that's going on inside of me that Paul talked about in other places. Like there is this war in my members. Evil, the old man, the self-focused heart. And good, the new man, created after the image of Christ Jesus. And the good that I would do, I find not. And the evil that I would not do, that I do. In other words, there's a war in my members. And so there's a battle out there. And in here, we come to the end of the Bible, and it's still about war. It's about the time when the Lord comes back, and he sends horsemen. There's this guy who rides a red horse, and a third of the world's blood is spilt, and the rivers flow red as high as the horse's bridle. War. Trumpets are sounding, and the announcement will be made according to Revelation in the end. That judgment is poured out upon the nation. God is coming to war against the nations. And bowls filled with the wrath of God are poured out and spilled out on this world and globe as we now know it. And the final war is fought. And let me add this. And God wins the war. So, 
between Genesis and the final war when all things are made right and no more war. Between then and now, every human being, and especially the followers of Christ, are sometimes pawns in the war. And God calls us to be more than pawns that are just used by the evil one. But he calls us in the Christian walk to be soldiers of the cross who stand firmly and fully armed against the real enemy in this life and in this walk called the Christian walk. Now that brings us to our text for today. Ephesians 6, 14, just half a verse. Oh good, Larry's only going to take 15 minutes today. Half a verse. Oh, it's too packed to do it in 15 minutes, but let's walk through it. Powerful verse, Ephesians 6, 14 says, read it with me, it's on the screen please, so that we're reading the same, it's a New King James translation. Read it out loud. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Read it again with me. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Watch the three mandates that are in that one phrase. The three commands that are given to us. The very first is this. It is stand. The Greek word is histemi. Or histemi. Aren't you glad you came to hear that? What's that mean? That literally means, listen carefully, give no ground. In other words, stand where you stand and don't retreat. Give no ground. There is no excuse according to this command that's given, this three-part command that I'm unfolding with you and I'm packaging with you. There is no excuse For losing ground to the enemy, for the soldier of the cross. Because the very will of God and the very power of God is made available to us to stand and lose no ground. Now stay with me. I've referred to and will yet refer to again this guy in the Old Testament named Eliezer. He went out with the army of Israel. They formed one battle line against the enemy that was coming, and it was the Philistines. The Philistine army far outnumbered God's army, the army of the Israelites that Eliezer served with. They stood shoulder to shoulder, and they see them rise up over the distant hillside marching toward them. And if you handle it the way the most of the army handled it, you see them coming and you know, we are few, they are many, we're done. That's the human perspective. And so what did most of Israel do? The guy who was right, the guy who was left, and on down on both sides of him, the entire army of Israel turned tail and ran 
But Eliezer, listen, stood his ground. And in the end, you who know the story and remember it from last week, you know that the end result was Eliezer won because he stood the ground. Now watch this. Something powerful in that story. The armies of the enemy always outnumber the armies of the Lord. Well, that's the team I want to be on. Yeah, better be. You know why? Because the victory does not depend on the number, the quantity, how many are at war or in the fight. The victory depends on the power of the God who is all-powerful. So it rests with the few. Did not Jesus talk to us about, through the recorded in the uh, uh, Gospels, didn't he talk to us about the Broadway? And many are on that road that leads to destruction. And he talked about the narrow way. And few there are on that narrow road that leads to life eternal. The path, the numbers, the quantity of the enemy is always larger than the quantity of the soldiers that stand beside you in your Christian walk. But the war is not won or lost based on how many I can get to stand with me. It is won or lost based on whether I am standing and fighting in the battle on the Lord's side. That's the winning or losing. So there's no reason for us to lose. We may be fewer in number. That does not mean we've lost. What does it mean? It means we must be very careful not to count, and that's why God in the Old Testament refused to let David count the numbers in the army that he had, the number of fighting men that he had. There was a season he refused to let him count them because he didn't want David resting on human strength. And that's why at one point, when a guy named Gideon was in charge of the Lord's army, he said, I've got 30,000 men, I'm ready to go to war. God said, "Uh uh-uh. Whittle it down. Okay, let's go to 20,000, 15,000, 10,000, 3,000. No, here's what I want you to do. 300 will do. I'm like, Gideon, I am so, so on your side. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, no, no. 300 empowered by the Lord. Standing in the strength, we talked about it last Lord's Day, the power of the Lord is far stronger than that of the masses that are around us. Do you believe that? So stand. Since you're standing in his strength, we already looked at it, there's no reason to lose in this battle. Because last time I checked, God is omnipotent. Nothing's bigger or more powerful than he is. Now, having said that, he builds on it a bit further. Stand girded. 
And this is two words put together in the original language. And the two words are these. It's around and belt. In reverse it, it's a belt that's put all the way around. But there's something unique about this belt that I've never seen before until this week. This belt has hollow places in it in which the Roman soldier would put money or important documents that were important to his trek or travel as a soldier in the Roman army. You think maybe there's an important document to put in the belt that we're called on to wear in this battle, this Christian battle? That was a question, church. Is there an important document to put in there? It might be called the Word of God. Let me come at it this way. The Lord Jesus was led in the Spirit to be tempted of the devil in the wilderness. I read that wrong for years and preached it wrong, and no one ever loved me enough to correct me. I preached it for years as if the devil led him in the wilderness to tempt him there after he had fasted for 40 days and nights. He did not. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, I know God tempts no man with sin. God's not the author of temptation. But sometimes God leads us to the place where we are tempted in this battle. Maybe that's why he has us pray and there wouldn't be no need to pray this part of the model prayer if he, if, we, if he didn't lead us on occasion into those times. Lead us not into... That's a prayer of a Christian to God. Sometimes he takes us into battle to see what kind of soldier we are. And when Jesus was led into that battle that day, he modeled for us the kind of soldier that wins against the arch enemy. The enemy tempted him by saying, you've not eaten for the last 40 days. Listen, I get crabby when I don't eat breakfast. Don't your husband's cows? Yeah. His body had to be weakened. And the devil came at him with eat. Turn these stones into bread. Now to keep with the uh, Ephesians 6 analogy, the Lord Jesus reached into the hollow of his belt. And he pulled out an important document and a section of it. And he said, I'm not sure what to throw at you here, so let me just start at Genesis 1-1. He pulled out of his belt and read this important document. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness fell upon the face of the deep, and every other single verse he could think of in all the Bible. Is that what he did? No, this is important. It's where we're headed in this challenge. He discerned what to pull out. He knew exactly what to say. Here, turn this stone to bread. 
it is written, he pulled it out of the hollow of his belt, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, out of my face, enemy. What did he do? He knew that the value of the belt was to strap on all the hold in place all the armor and all the garments that needed to be held in place, but more than that, to be a place where he could go to pull out the real weapon against the enemy, the Word of God. Let me just give you a heads up. Every single piece of armor does exactly the same thing. It pulls out the scripture that's needed to bring the enemy down. So what did he do? Jesus reached in the hollow of the belt. I believe this is why there's so much failure in the church of Christ. Those who would win think somehow they can win just by sleeping and laying their head on a Bible or coming and listening to a download from a preacher. You don't win that way, my beloved. You win by picking up that sword, that word every day, pulling out of it key resources and saying, ah, that fits the battle I'm in. I'm tucking it in the hollow of my belt so that when the enemy stands against me, and I'm face to face with him. I have something to pull out. I'm trying to say so few take the battle seriously enough to have anything in the belt to pull out. And then we wonder why the enemy wins. You with me? So here's the first mandate. Don't give up ground. The second part of the mandate. Instead, stand by having at the ready the portions of the scriptures that are key in the battle you face. And then here's the last. It's stand girded with, say it, truth. Well, that's kind of a repetition, isn't it? Reach into the belt, pull out the truth, so gird yourself with truth. Yeah, but the word truth here is not what I always thought it was. I used to think it was this body of truth that we hold in our hands and we carry with us to church and that we have at home and sometimes open up. It's the Bible. That's not the word, though it could have been the word for the word. But it's not. The truth here is a word that actually deals more with the skill set than it does with the Bible itself. Be girded up, have in the hollow of that belt the truth, the word of God, so that you can be, skill set here, a discerner, knowing what word to use against the evil one. I won't believe it, but I want to wrap it up with this. Your turn. 
So, learn, my beloved, to discern truth. Can I say that again? Learn to discern truth. To weigh the lies of the enemy and the darts of the evil one and his deceitful accusations. Learn to weigh them with the word of God to see if they are true. I am appalled after 44 years, most of which I downloaded Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and other Bible study times in Sunday school, most weeks, five times a week, I downloaded truth on God's people. And then I, I, I could not believe my ears, the things I heard coming out of God's people's minds and hearts and mouths. It's like, and I, I still see things circulating today that people have so little discernment about. You know what people believe about heaven? There are some who believe more. A book written about a little boy who died, went to heaven, and miraculously was brought back to life. And we base what we believe on what a little boy thinks he saw while he was dead. And the parents back it up, and it's like this little boy couldn't have written this. Someone else is writing it for him, and it's like, that's what we believe about heaven, what a little boy saw. It's a popular book today. Do you base what you believe based on that kind of a concept? Or do we base it, my beloved, on holy writ that God has given us to be a discerner of what's true about heaven, about life, about all of life? It's based on the book. Learn to be a discerner wise, able to separate truth from error. That's what this belt of truth is all about, being girded about with truth. Let me come at it another way. Sometimes over the years, couples, a, a number of couples have come in whose marriage is in trouble. And more times than not, one or the other of them comes in to get Larry to applaud what they're thinking. And what they're thinking is something like this. You know, I'm just not happy. I, I so want to just stop the conversation every time I hear that. It's like, well, wonder what there is about two sinners, albeit saved by grace, living together that causes unhappiness. I don't, don't know. We're sinners saved by grace, I get it, but we are not perfect till we get there. So therefore, Elaine has trouble with me because of me. I better stop there, hadn't I? There's this war in a relationship. So they say, I'm not happy. And then you know what they say next as if it were a discerning, wise statement? And God wants everybody to be happy. So I start thumbing through the pages of Holy Writ and saying, well, sure, let, let me help you find that. 
We start in Genesis 1-1 and end up with the last chapter of the book of Revelation. And one year later, we haven't found one verse that says God's goal is to make me happy. Who's that all about? Moi. You didn't answer it, so I will. It's about me. No, no. God didn't bring you into a marriage relationship to make you happy. That's a byproduct of what God brought you into the relationship for. It's a byproduct of the ultimate goal of God for you. Sure, God desires happiness, but that's not his goal. He knows it comes anyway if you buy into his goal for your life itself and for your marriage relationship. And I don't get how people haven't got this over the years with all the downloads I've done. It's just this. We exist for one reason, to honor and glorify God, period. And to the extent that I do that, my life is filled with joy. To the extent that I do that, it makes my bride, makes it easier for her to love me. I'm not in this for me. I'm in it for God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in the beginning of time, enjoyed their relationship. But there is a sense in which God wants to say to you, we weren't happy till we made you. God wanted companionship with you. The triune God. Why? Because you and I are so special? Don't think so. Just because he loved us, he made us. And he knew the only way it would work is if we had the discernment to want to honor and please and adore and honor him. And I tried the other route. I tried it in church for 20 years until it dawned on me, well, this isn't working real good at all. I tried trying to make everybody happy. I can't even make that section over there happy. I can't make the second row up here happy. It's not within my power. It's not even the goal. The goal is to honor God and to please Him. When you and I get that, we've just begun to be effective soldiers of the cross. Learn to be a discerner. Laying what sounds good next to what alone is good, the Word of God. Most of our Baptists Statements of faith are prefaced with the word of God is our only rule of faith and practice. What a lie. That's not the way it happens in the body. But that's what we want to move toward. Yo. Now watch this. Please, please, please get this from this study. Keep 
close to your side. People who have the courage to speak truth into your life. Do you need that kind of a person at your side? God knows I do. He gave me Elaine. And I so value that relationship. There's a Hebrew word for friendship in the Old Testament that's a special friendship. It's called Ahab. And it's not the general friendliness you have with everybody who knows the Lord. It's not that kind of thing. It rather is a special, intimate, close relationship in which people, as best as they can, humanly speaking, they know you from the inside out. You've been that transparent with them. For some reason, God allows you to have that kind of trust with them. And frankly, there are very few in life that you will ever have that kind of trust um, in. And you need to be wise on choosing who that kind of friend is. But when you find them, you learn it doesn't take long. This is such a God thing. Elaine and I have one special couple over the years. They were here and visited. I don't know if you remember Frank and Judy. Frank gave a testimony that day about his family and life relationship. But Frank with me and Judy with Elaine, they're that kind of people. I can't count the number of times when he would walk in to where I was studying in my office as a pastor in a church where he served as well. He would say, time to talk. And he would speak truth into my life. And I knew it was coming from somebody who knew me and who knew that what was happening was not totally in the Spirit of God. i got to tell you, I need those kinds of soldiers in every church that we go as interim ministry. I need that kind of wife by my side, and thank God I have that in the home that I live. I need those kind of soldiers standing and holding fast the ground with me and me with them. Do you have any Ahabs? I'm convinced most don't. And I want to call you this morning to plead and pray and earnestly seek God on your face and say, God, give me that kind of a discerner has his belt on or her belt on who knows how to pull out from that belt a piece of the document that transforms my thinking and says Larry or put your name there you must change the way you think and are acting build those kinds of relationships The army falls without them. Do you hear me? The army falls 
without those kinds of relationships. That might be a good place to plug connection groups. You need people regularly around you who are plugging his light into your life, helping you be a discerner. And if not there, there are other places, but find them. Don't live with